This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Hey everybody, I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. And I'm Kimberly Adams. Thank you for joining us on this Tuesday. And because it is Tuesday, that means it's time to do a deep dive into a single topic. And today we're going to all get smarter together about the thing that so many of us have been talking about and experimenting with and all the other things. Chat GPT and the new wave of generative AI. There is oh so much hype uh, about these systems, a lot of money as well. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about what it might mean for us, both what we know about it now and, and what, honestly, to get Rumsfeld in here, the unknown unknowns. Um, because, you know, for some, it's a little bit scary. For some, it's an opportunity. And we're going to talk about all that stuff. Yes. And here to help us understand this is Alex Hanna, Director of Research at the Distributed AI Research Institute. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So first of all, can you explain what generative AI is exactly and and how it's different from sort of other artificial intelligence tools that people might already be familiar with? Yeah, totally. So um, there's kind of two classes of AI tools. There's AI that's used to classify different types of things. So for instance, businesses will often use things like churn models to predict when, you know, how customers are going to return, how likely they are to return. Generative AI works differently. It takes some kind of an input and it generates uh, some kind of a novel output. So instead of doing some kind of classification or um, task where it's generating number or, or uh, predicting a number, it's generating something like text or images or um, you know all these things around art and essays and the things that we're not, we now know as generative AI. Why then? All right. So look, we've known this is coming. We've been using AI in in one form or another for a while now, right? Even if we don't always know it. Why do you think now everybody's like, oh, my God, it's AI, you know? Well, because now it looks like the things of our science fiction dreams or nightmares yeah. in some well, other cases, right? And... Yeah. You know, these kinds of things, we, we have all these visions of what an, what an AI system can look like. We have all these science fiction models of, of HAL or of um, the computer system in the Star Trek where you make an inquiry and it gives you some kind of an informative answer. And so it looks like that. And it also looks pretty believable. Um, it looks like we can't distinguish between um, what is human made and computer made. There's this um, this old test, which is not really very rigorous, um, but it's called the Turing test, named after mm -hmm. the computer science Alan Turing, and you know that that effectively says, well, if, if a human can't distinguish between computer generated output. In a human-generated output, then it passes the Turing test. So we're getting to this point where these things, which look impossibly complex, um, 
look very artistic, look very nuanced. We really are having a harder time telling the differences between if this is this human made or is this computer made. So I think that's why we're getting really into this hype cycle right now. So basically because we're scared now. Fear, I think, is one reaction. Excitement's another reaction. Or if you're like me and some of my colleagues, maybe um, kind of rolling your eyes strongly <laughs> is another reaction. <laughs> Wait, wh- why the strong yeah. eye roll? Yeah. Say more about well, that. Well, the strong eye roll because I think – we really have to get under what these systems are doing um, to really, you know, to, to get a sense of, of, of how they're doing it and, and why they're producing this output. So there's excitement on one hand from a lot of the people who create this technology, and there's a lot of fear from people who either may be subject to this technology or who are, uh, let's say, teachers um, and artists. But when you step back and kind of see what's actually happening under the hood, yeah, there's a lot of math. Um, and there, and, and I don't want to undersell the engineering that's involved in this. It's, it's, it's kind of a um, massive amount of engineering. At the same time, the sources that are being used to train these models. And in, in AI, we say that uh, it kind of learns, um, you, you know, and there, there's a lot in that metaphor, but it learns from all these past data. But we don't know where a lot of these data come from or the data are explicitly um, from particular people and particular artists. So I know there's at least one lawsuit in the works, mm-hmm. some artists have been um, organizing a suit um, because people will give prompts to tools like Midjourney or Stable Diffusion, and they'll say, um, "I would like to paint a picture of a dragon in the style of, you know, whoever this famous dragon uh, uh, creator is or a dragon illustrator is," and it illustrates it very much in that style. Um, so it's doing a lot of uh, frankly, stealing of a lot of these prior works. It, sorry, something you said triggered a question in me, and that was the engineering. Is is AI, ChatGPT specifically, but all the rest of them as well, is it hard engineering? It's hard insofar as you're building something that has billions of what are called parameters. They basically have to learn all these numerical representations of these images or these texts. And so... It's difficult engineering merely on a scale nature of these. And that's why Mm -hmm. a lot of the companies that are doing this, they are either large companies like Google uh, or, or, or Microsoft or they're like OpenAI, which is smaller, but it has sponsorship from Microsoft. Um, So they are uh, pretty large engineering feats. Um, Also a lot of it is scaling these things up from, kind of smaller um, test, you know, testing and finding out how to do this in a kind of a more efficient, uh, more cost-effective manner across, you know, hundreds if not thousands of, of, of computers and, and um, specialized hardware. 
Well, and also in in, an ethical way, which I don't have to tell you, because you used to work for Google's ethical AI team and and left the company along with some others because you all said you didn't believe the company was doing enough to mitigate some of the harms that its products were having on unmarginalized communities. When you think about the fact that this technology is out in the wild now, and when it comes to this widespread use of generative AI like ChatGPT and and Dolly, what are you most concerned about right now? So the first thing I'm thinking about is that there is so much capital, so much money (laughs) in this generative AI game now. Mm -hmm. I think I saw a report, something like 30 engineers and research scientists that were at Google's machine learning lab, Google Brain, I want to say that I think 30 engineers had left in the past year alone to go ahead and work at these large language, large uh, image generation startups. That's a huge brain drain if you're thinking about an organization that is, I'd say, half the people in the organization uh, are engineers or, or research scientists. Um, and it's also distracting from what could be more responsible development of AI technologies, focusing more on governance, focusing more on auditing, focusing more on um, fairness and ethics of this work and building in those guardrails. We know that this regulation is coming, um, both in in the EU with the AI Act, as well as a few bills kicking around the U.S. Congress. And so focusing on making those, um, making these things work better for people is getting short shrift now. The other two things I'm thinking about are, one, the outputs of these. The outputs of these are pretty narrow, especially if you're thinking about language. The languages that they're serving are going to be those languages which already have an immense amount of representation in the um, in the in the public internet, um, so that's going to look like English. Uh, mostly, you're not going to get technologies that work for people um, who um, speak Isihosa in 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 South Africa or uh, uh, Amharic in Ethiopia or Egyptian Arabic. If I mean, if we're being sort of um, cutting close to home, which is you know what what my parents speak. I mean, you're not you're not actually getting getting that representation. The third thing is the externalities of this. Sam Altman, who's actually one of the VCs involved in OpenAI, has said something of the nature of these things are emitting wild amounts of carbon. Um, these things are just oh, yeah. carbon machines. So and I'd love to see if there's any intrepid listeners out there, if someone could actually estimate, you know, based on available data, how much carbon is emitted from a single query to mm. chat GPT. Oh my gosh. Um, and I yeah. really actually haven't seen anything of that nature. So that's, you know, that's a summation of, of kind of all the worries that are, that I have with these things, you know, both in how it attracts attention, how it attracts capital, how it is harming people that already don't have access or technology that are serving them and just exacerbating the climate catastrophe. So just as a as a way to sort of bring this sort of full circle here to to our daily lives and where we go from here, what what do you imagine, Alex, the regulatory environment to be? Who's going to regulate it? Should be regulate should it be regulated? How 
I mean, the government does not have a great track record, certainly in the recent decade or two, of regulating technology. How do you suppose it happens here if it needs to happen at all? It certainly doesn't have a good track record, but it's also because regulation lags pretty far behind the um, new – as new technologies develop. So I would say there needs to be focus on these large models, I think from the perspective of not only their outputs – it could be shown that you could game it for uh, making offensive statements based on race, gender, um, nationality, disability. Um, they're probably not going to catch them all unless they're actually stress tested by um, folks that have more access to their internals. Mm. Um, so that's one vector in which we could focus on them. We could also focus on the different kinds of consequences that could possibly come out of that, whether that's around um, safety, whether that's around um, equal access to things that may be benefits. Um, and since we're so early in this chat GPT game, um, you know, we're getting these essays in which, you know, there's, there's, there's fear around, you know, the college essay or the high mm-hmm. school essay is dead, um, which, you know, I have less of concern around that as an educator. Um, I think that, you know, you can tell what the differences are. And I think the, um, to, to kind of buy into the narrative that you, this is completely indistinguishable, maybe it's giving the engineers a bit too much credit on this. But it would be about holding the companies who are generating and creating these things responsible, not the person that uses it for uh, a downstream application, but the knowledge that, there's so much happening under the hood um, that we don't get access to that are being used and are going to be used in so many domains. There needs to be much more transparency. There needs to be much more um, ability to audit, um, to, to, to have folks who are not affiliated with the company to do some reporting. There is a bill working its way through U.S. Congress called the Algorithmic Accountability Act, which would allow auditing to occur um, via the FTC and FTC technologists. But, you know, even if that passes, I mean, there may be a a pretty huge enforcement gap there. Um, Hmm. So it's a pretty complicated answer to the question of should there be regulation? The short answer is yes, but the harder answer is how. Yeah. Early days <laughs> yet. Very, <laughs> very early days. No joke. Alex Hanna is the director of research at the Distributed AI Research Institute. Alex, thanks a lot for your time and your perspective. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Kai. Thanks so much, Kimberly. <laughs> thanks. You know, every single one of these conversations about chat GPT and generative AI that um, I hear or that we've had, mm-hmm. I just feel like it opens up a whole batch of new questions. Yeah, totally. And, you know, there's there's so much left to unpack. Um, Megan McCarty-Carino did an interview with somebody over on the tech show about some of those lawsuits. And, you know, artists feeling like, you know, their work is being used to feed these algorithms without their consent and that there's literally, not only is there no legal framework for their you know, how to deal with their art being used to feed this algorithm without their consent. But there's also no legal framework to see whether or not the outcome of what is generated is a copyright violation. So it's just all completely new. 
And it, it's it's so interesting because somehow it feels, and look, I know ChatGPT has been around for what, like six weeks? Mm. It feels like it's been around forever. Years, actually. And, it has. Different right, versions right. of it have well, been around for years. It's this true. public that's version true. that's new. That's true. That's true. That's a very good point. Um, yeah, I just it is early days yet. It's all such new technology. Such new technology. Well, it's just I keep thinking about the tractor, you know, and th- these other earth-shattering technologies that completely upended the way that we live and work, right? You know, for yep. tens of thousands of years of humanity, people, you know, plowed fields themselves by hand or with animals. And then we got tractors and a whole chunk of the labor force went away, right? Or went to do right. something else. Right. So, you know, I always think about these sorts of major technology changes as, is it a tractor? <laughs> That's a really good way to do it, actually. It's a really good way to do it. I like that. Hmm. Uh, let us know what you think, would you, if uh, you are half full or perhaps half empty about the future of generative AI and chat GPT and all the rest of them, because there are more coming, of course. Send us your thoughts. Our phone number is 508-827-6278, 508-UB-SMART, or you can email us, old-fashioned email, marketplace.org. We're coming right back. All right, news. Kimberly Adams, you go. I have two stories about insurance okay. because okay. what more thrilling topic than insurance, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know. Um, so the first one is this story I saw CBS and a couple of other places, but the the link I have for the show notes is CBS. Uh, is that there are several cars that seem to be uninsurable. Not right now, or oh a version gosh. of it. So State Farm, and it looks like Progressive a bit, is starting to limit whether or not they will insure some Kia and Hyundai, or Hyundai, you know, however we're going to say that, uh, vehicles because they're so easy to steal. <laughs> and Oh, my God. You know, really? Yeah. I've been... Um, one of my friends in St. Louis was telling me about this, about how like this particular brand of car just keeps getting stolen, keeps getting stolen. Apparently, this has been all over local news all over the country that, you know, thefts of particular brands of cars have really gone up because something about them makes them easier to steal. And so I'm going to read from CBS here. State Farm mm-hmm. has said it will temporarily stop providing new auto insurance policies for some model years and trim levels of Hyundai and Kia vehicles in some states because of an increase in thefts of those cars. Obviously not wow. specifying which versions, because, you know, don't want to increase the target. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Progressive mm-hmm. has stopped writing new policies on some of these cars, according to another CBS station. But uh, the companies are like, oh, we're doing what we can to fix the cars. But, yeah, this is really interesting that your car is so easily stealable that insurance companies are like, yeah, we're not even going to bother. So, we're not even going to try. Wow. Yeah. That's not great. So that's, that's great. story number one. Story number two yes. is a report out from the Commonwealth Fund about how mm-hmm. terrible U.S. healthcare is, which is basically saying that – the healthcare spending in the United States is double, nearly double what other wealthy countries spend, but our health is significantly worse. We're more likely to have chronic conditions. We go to the doctor less frequently. And I'm going to read this list of something. Let's see. 
Their analysis suggests that overall health in the U.S. is worse than in any than, than in other high-income countries. Life expectancy at birth for the U.S. is three years below the OECD average. The obesity rate in the U.S. is nearly double the OECD average at about 43 percent compared to 25 percent. In addition, the rate of avoidable deaths in the United States was 336 deaths per 1,000 people compared to 225. Uh, Part of that is due Mm. to the level of violence in the United Mm. States, um, but we also have a lot more chronic conditions. 30% of us have two or more chronic conditions compared to 17% or 20% and 26% of some of the worst. But we're we're, as much money as we spend on health care. We have terrible health care in this country. Yeah. Yeah. So. We I mean we just do. Yes, we've got some yeah. of the best healthcare in the world, but it's terrible healthcare and f- for the price per capita, it's it's embarrassingly bad. Yeah, it is. Um, all right. What do you have? Uh all right. So mine's mine's quick and it's it's uh very wonky, but it's a little bit huh? So Janet Yellen uh, has just wrapped up uh, a trip uh, through Africa. She wrapped it up on Friday or Saturday. And she gave an interview on Friday that is while she was in Johannesburg that is just sort of this week, like yesterday morning, hitting the American press. And I just wanted to highlight it because I think it's very, um, one, interesting, but number two, also very, huh. Janet Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury, former Fed chair, says persistently low inflation is going to be a continuing problem in this economy. Now, that's interesting for two reasons. Number one, inflation is really high now, coming down, yes, and really just like two, two and a half percent over the past six months. So inflation is moderating. But the really interesting part of that is for years and years and years and years and years, especially while Janet Yellen was chair of the Fed, Inflation was well below the Fed's target of 2%. And no matter what the central bank did, it could it not get it not to move. 2%. <laughs> it would could not. not. Move. And in fact, I, I asked, so I asked many Janet Yellen. In a, I, it's crazy. We did I so remember. many stories. And I asked her one day at a thing in Washington with, with Malpass, the World Bank guy. I said, why is inflation so low? I know. She looked at me and literally gave the shruggy. She was like, I don't know. So I remember that because the whole room burst into laughter. I know. I, she was just I like, know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, right? And you're like, no, you're, it's your job to know. She was between Fed chair and Treasury secretary. Anyway, mm. if we're going back there, I think there's going to be some whiplash and people are going to be like, wait, what? And huh? And I just, if and when the Fed gets inflation under control for this cycle and we go back to sub 2% inflation, what is even happening out there? What is happening? Time for some new economic models. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Anyway, that's what we got news-wise. Let's go. Yes, so let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right, so Amy and I were talking last week about uh, people looking for jobs using ChatGPT to stay on topic for a second. And we asked all y'all to weigh in on that. Rachel sent us this. Hi, my name's Rachel. I'm calling from Austin, Texas. I was listening to the episode on Friday, and I am half full on using ChatGPT to write cover letters. Not only do I find cover letters to be completely pointless and usually not read by the screeners, um, if you look at larger corporations, they're all using AI to screen applications. So if AI is being used to screen the things that I write, why shouldn't I be able to write things with AI? Thanks so much. Love the podcast. Doesn't that just that, cancel so, 
each other out? Like yeah, AI I mean, making, writing sense. the application, AI reading the application? Uh, yeah, and, and how far are we from like humans not going to be involved? I mean, look, that makes total sense and I get it. It just somehow doesn't yeah. feel right to me. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's sort of like um, (laughs) a way to just be like, okay, this is a step we should probably skip in the first place and just get straight to the next step. Because if if the AI can basically do the step on both ends, then maybe the step is not necessary for humans at all. (laughs) Right, 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 right. So let's get rid of cover letters. They're bogus. Yes. Anyway. All right, before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? And this week's answer comes from Elva Ramirez, author of Zero Proof, 90 Non-Alcoholic Recipes for Mindful Drinking. Um, What's something I thought I knew but later found out I was wrong about? The temperance drink, which we now call a mocktail or a zero-proof cocktail, is as old as our classic cocktails. Before researching my book, I didn't know that temperance drink recipes appear in the very first cocktail book, which is called A Bartender's Guide, and it was published by American Jerry Thomas in 1862. Mocktails evolved during Prohibition, but one of the reasons they gained a terrible reputation has to do with the 1980s, when bartenders who tried to revive the drink style relied on heavy, too sweet concoctions that had little to do Mm. with cocktail culture. While mocktails Mm. did come to have a bad reputation, they shouldn't be sneered at because they were accorded respect alongside mint juleps and gin fizzes from the very start. History is cool. I'm just going to say history is cool. I also think, by the way, if I could just editorialize here for one second, and I know you will Mm. disagree, Ms. Adams, I think zero proof cocktails is better than cleverage. Um, I'm, 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 I'm still debating all of these things. Um, Okay. All right. I'm spirit free cocktails or spirit free uh, or just, you know, I don't know. It's because I think the definition of cocktail requires alcohol so like adding a modifier onto a thing that it is not i don't know i'm, I'm still i'm still pondering it i haven't come to right. any solutions on my you know finish <laughs> yeah. as i finish out dry january that's right you uh, right. you ponder and report back and we'll discuss on friday how about that yeah um all right all but right. good good yes good. okay good 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 so uh, whatever your thoughts on Zero Proof Cocktails or Cleverages or whatever else you want to call it, uh, send us your thoughts, your answer to the Make Me Smart question, your questions for Wednesdays, whatever you like. Um, send us what you got. Our number is 508-827-6278, 508-U-B-SMART. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado with mixing by Charlton Thorpe. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our acting senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and on demand. Marketplace vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. And there you have it. I have to say I've tried a large variety of spirit-free cocktails, cleverages, mocktails over the last month, and many of them were quite good. There you go.